In the time of the Roman occupation of Britain, there was a revolt that set back the Roman rule to the point where it may have altered the very landscape and future development of what would become the United Kingdom of modern times. It created a devastating blow to the Romans who were looking to continuously expand their territory. Around 60 AD, the warrior queen of the Iceni tribe in what is modern-day England started an insurrection against the Romans, which developed into a campaign that would be the most destructive revolt against the Romans in 50 years. What was the story behind the tribes of Britain putting aside their differences and uniting together to fight against the Roman occupiers? Who is this mythical female character Boudicca, whose very name may have been derived from a goddess in the culture of the Britons? The story of Boudicca and the revolt against the Romans is a story of revenge, of hope, and of destruction. Let's get into the conditions that turned a moderately peaceful Roman-occupied England into a land where both the Britons and the Romans fought for their very survival. We are also going to go into the details of this now mythical figure of Boudicca from ancient times, who she was and what happened to create her story, which has now lived on for millennia. What part did she take in the evolution of the world to turn her into a legend? Even if you haven't heard her name, you have probably seen symbolism of her in the form of a mighty warrior of ancient Britain. A tall, fierce warrior queen with long, flowing red hair and dressed in a long tunic. She is usually ornamented with a fancy golden necklace called a brooch and wielded a spear as her weapon. Imagery of her usually presented her standing upon her war chariot, and in many modern movies, she had the blue swirl-style paintings on her skin that warriors of ancient Britain were known to display. Her attire was covered in the color pattern similar to modern-day flannels, which reminds people of the ancient heritage of Britain. Maybe you have seen the symbolism of her in the past, or maybe now it will be more noticeable when the imagery appears and you know the source of the material. There are a ton of references to Boudicca throughout the ages. Just to rattle off a few, next to the Parliament building in the UK today is a statue of Boudicca upon her chariot, which was constructed in 1902. In 1916, the sculptor James Harvard Thomas created a marble statue of Boudicca with her children alongside her, which still resides in the Civic Hall of Cardiff in Wales. In 1987, the Prime Minister of England, Margaret Thatcher, was featured in two newspaper cartoons depicted as Boudicca on her war chariot. There was a play written about the life of Boudicca in 1996. The Royal Mint produced a limited edition coin of Boudicca in 1997. In 2003, Ford Motor Company ran an ad featuring an illustration of Boudicca. In 2003 again, there was also a movie about Boudicca. And one more for good measure, in 2013, in the video game Rise, Son of Rome, 
Boudicca was featured as an enemy leader that must be defeated. Now let's get into how things were unfolding in ancient Britain, which led up to the legendary Boudicca and her revolt against the Romans designed to kick the foreign invaders off her soil. Hello and welcome to the Spark History Show, where we bring history to light. Take a dive with us into history and hear the real accounts of the stories of the past as they actually unfolded. Explore with us as we shine some light on the amazing events that shaped our world into what we have today. We are going to recreate the stories of the past to better understand the struggles and triumphs during the most epic moments in history. This is the Spark History Show. Let us begin the journey. The story of Boudicca starts with the Roman decision to invade the island known as Britain, which happened long before her time, setting the stage for how the events of Boudicca's war would later unfold. Keep in mind that when we use the term Britain, we are describing primarily the area of what would later become the countries of England and Wales, which are part of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, as it is known today. At this time, the territory was only known as Britain or Britannia, with Britain being spelled B-R-I-T-O-N instead of the modern version. But it was comprised of a collection of tribes and was not considered one unified country or population. In the first century BC, many of the inhabitants of Britain lived on the coastline in areas that had access to a subsoil of chalk, which could be used for animal grazing and farmland. Much of the inland areas of the country contained a subsoil of boulder clay, which allowed great forests to grow, but made it difficult for a tribe to establish agriculture in the area or clear out the thick woodlands. Many tribes from other areas entered the territory of Britain either to raid or establish colonies. The Belgai tribe from what is now Germany set up settlements in Britain and brought with them their knowledge of working iron. I just want to note here that with a lot of the ancient names, there are multiple ways they may have been pronounced. I will try to give the common versions or stick to one of the most widely used to make it easier on everyone. The Belgae were also known as the Belgi or the Belgae. Smiths who were skilled in developing tools and weapons of iron sold their wares to their own people and neighboring tribes of Britain. This increased the weapon technology of the day and also allowed more tribes to clear and cultivate what had once been the dense forest land in the interior of the country. The transfer of people and technology from mainland Europe to the island of Britain created an issue with one of the most famous generals of Roman history, Julius Caesar, who was campaigning against the people of Gaul in continental Europe. Caesar felt that to end his campaign against the Gauls in what is now the area of France, Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, and Germany, he would have to also hit the tribes that had moved across the English Channel to make a home in Britain. 
Otherwise, these tribes would help their brethren by sending troops into continental Europe to assist in fighting against the Romans and then fall back to relative safety of their villages back in Britain. To disrupt this support, Julius Caesar believed he would have to take the fight to Britain to take on the tribes such as the, the Belgae on their new homeland to ensure the Gauls in Europe would not be able to receive support from troops and supplies emanating from Britain. This would also stamp out the last resistance from the Gauls as they would have no safe place to run. Julius Caesar ended up launching two offensives into Britain. The first was on August 26, 55 BC. The landing party of two legions of up to 12,000 men literally rammed into local resistance as soon as they made landfall on Britain as the Britons had assembled a fighting force and followed the ships along the shoreline until the Romans located shorelines suitable for their landing. Caesar's troops were able to win the battle in a Saving Private Ryan Normandy Beach-style attack by storming the beach through a hail of javelins and charging the enemy troops. After pushing the Britons back, the Romans set up camp. After a few more battles, Julius Caesar had had enough as he couldn't pursue the defeated enemies after an engagement as his cavalry was not able to arrive on the island due to extreme weather in the channel crossing. The following year, in 54 BC, Julius Caesar again launched a raid into Britain. This time, with an army of five legions, they were able to travel down the Thames River to engage the Britons further inland. After this campaign, the Romans left Britain after signing a peace treaty with one of the tribal kings. Caesar had achieved his glory and now headed back to mainland Europe. It was not for another 100 years in 43 AD when Roman Emperor Claudius sent General Aulius Platius to effectively start the Roman conquest of Britain. General Platius would go on to become the first Roman governor of territory in Britain after his invasion campaign. Claudius embarked on his campaign with the assistance of four Roman legions, the 2nd Augusta, the 9th Hispania, the 14th Germania, and the 20th Valeria. Keep in mind that the average legion size was around 5,000 men at this time. The total army was comprised of half of Roman legions and half of auxiliary troops for a total of 40,000 men. When the troops arrived in England, it was 97 years after Romans had first set foot on the soil. Although diplomatic and economic ties with the island were maintained since Caesar had set foot on the land, the new policy was to bring southern England or southern Britain directly under Roman control. Emperor Claudius had just come to power after the assassination of the Roman Emperor Caligula, whose strange and sadistic acts had been an embarrassment to the position of emperor. Claudius was thrown into the title with a hostile populace, a hostile senate, and a shaky hold on the throne. To cement his position, he decided to try and achieve a glorious win in Britain to gain political points back home. 
He embarked on the journey with General Plautius and was present during the conquest of the Britain's capital at Camulodunum. This was also known as the modern-day city of Colchester. Once the capital was taken and much of southern England placed under full Roman control, Claudius then headed back to Rome to promote the grand achievements he had made in foreign lands. Resistance in Britain continued, however, and the Romans fought to expand their control. The territory at the time was comprised of a vast number of tribes that the Romans would fight, make a deal with, or subjugate, and then move on towards the next one. The problem was a Catavolonian prince by the name of Caraticus decided he was going to flee to Wales on the western side of modern-day England after fighting the Romans on the southeastern side. Here, he managed to unite additional tribes under his banner and waged a guerrilla campaign against the Romans. His campaign would end up taking eight years for the Romans to quell. I think it may help here to map out the landscape of the country of the time. If England was a torso of a human body, and in the north around the city of Newcastle was its head, and then there was a long neck in the area of York, Leeds, and Manchester, we can kind of visualize where the cities and troops were geographically. If the body was facing away from us, then the west side of the island would be Wales. This would be like the left shoulder of the body. Wales was continually a point of turmoil where the Romans were constantly engaged in fighting. The southwest of England, or the lower left back in our visualization, was also an area of turmoil for the Romans where tribes continued to refuse Roman control. The main areas the Romans did have control stretched out from the southeastern part of the country where the lower right part of the back would be in our visualization. This was the area that contained the modern locations of Kent and London. Now, if we look in the middle right area of England where the right shoulder would be in our example, we come to the location of the Iceni tribe of England. On the left side of England, there is a bit of land that juts out looking like a shoulder, and that is called Wales. On the right side of England, there is also land that juts out as if it is a right shoulder. This right or mid-eastern side of England is where Boudicca's home tribe of the Iceni operated. The areas south of the Iceni were populated by the Trinovantes, which were subjugated by Roman authority and were put fully under Roman control. The areas fully under Roman control started to assimilate the Romanesque architecture and culture. Roman temples and baths were built in the cities, and Roman villas and cobblestone roads were placed into the countryside. To make the geography a bit easier to understand, I will give you a visual representation. I'll put a link to a map that shows where the ancient tribes were located in our show notes on our website, sparkhistory.com. Be sure to check it out. The area of the Iceni tribe maintained more of their local culture with traditional mud houses and thatched roofs and tribal way of life. 
The Asini capital was thought to have been located in what is now the town of Thetford in Norfolk, England. This area was kind of in the lower middle of the territory of England on the eastern side. Thetford is about 85 miles from the city of London of today. After fighting wars and rebellions in England, the Romans had subjugated the southern parts of the territory but made peace treaties with the Iceni and other tribes around the mid-area and in the north. When the Romans signed peace treaties, they usually made them specifically with a chieftain or king of a tribe or foreign civilization. This is different than how we think of it today, where a country signs an agreement with another country, such as what happened at the end of World War I with the Treaty of Versailles. If you really want to get into it, the Peace of Westphalia Treaty of 1648 was one of the turning points where the world really started to recognize nation-states rather than separate tribes and kingdoms, as is the case in ancient Britain. Keep in mind that the main territory of England that we are reviewing now, from 43 to 61 AD, had between 17 to 21 separate tribes over different areas. I could name them all, but let's not bog down our story. If you want to see what and where the tribes were, then just head over to our website notes. Surrounding the Iceni, though, were the Trinovantes in the south, the Cortani and Catavaluni to the west, and the Parisi to the north. During this age in the world, there were no countries in the sense that we have them today. Yet another reason why the Romans considered the Britons barbarians compared to their own civilization and empire. Peace was made with the Iceni king Prasutagus, sometimes known as Prasutagus, after the first wars and rebellions where Britain was added under Roman control. Peace generally reigned for 12 years under the new king. But the Roman policy of only having a treaty with a specific king rather than a kingdom would come to haunt the Iceni. Getting a bit old of age, Persuticus decided to make a will in the case of his death that would dictate what would happen to his kingdom. When the unfortunate time came around, his kingdom would be split in half. Half would go to the Romans, who he owed a certain allegiance with the peace treaty and as tribute, and the rest of the kingdom's lands would be left to his wife. It seems like a fair enough policy. The Romans would gain territory, and at the same time, his royal house would carry on ruling over part of the Iceni kingdom. It actually turned out that Persutagus, king of the Iceni's wife, is the protagonist of our story, not the king himself. She is the mighty Boadicea. Wait a minute. Did I say that right? No, no, no. Turns out that the name of our protagonist is actually pronounced Boudica. But I am not the only one that made that mistake. The name was actually mispronounced for hundreds of years because of a copying error. Back in medieval times, when scribes would copy text by hand to replicate a story, one of the scribes made a blunder writing Boudicca's name. While transcribing ancient Roman texts from Roman historian Tacitus, he copied over the spelling with a U instead of an A 
on the first half of the name. And on the other half, he listed the second C in the name as an E. Since the name sounded to a Latin Roman ear correct in this format, it caught on and then was used as commonplace for a hundred years. This shines some light on the extent of knowledge that we have about these ancient stories. There are so few sources that one misspelling can alter the story. Imagine if George Washington was misspelled as Waddington with a double D instead of an SH. People might be wondering why there was a state and capital that ended up with the name Washington when they couldn't find the historical reference to someone with that original name? There are two main works that describe the tale of Boudicca, and they are both from Roman sources. Publius Cornelius Tacitus, a Roman senator and historian, describes Boudicca's rebellion in his work The Annals, produced in AD 110 to 120, which was created many years since Boudicca's battles were fought in 60 to 61 AD. Cassius Dio was another statesman and historian of Rome, although he was from Greek origin. Now, Dio took 22 years to write his work, Roman History. In Volume 8 of Roman History, Dio describes Boudicca's revolt and provides different details than what Tacitus had provided in his earlier work. The issue is that Dio was not even born until 100 years after the time of Boudicca with him sprouting up in 155 AD. How he researched his story is unknown to us, but he probably had a number of separate sources that were available to him, but have now been lost to the passage of time. Many of the details surrounding the events of the past were most likely passed down as oral histories. We have different accounts of the same story, having it play out in different ways. The main researchers were also only on one side of the conflict and particularly biased to enhance the vision of their own empire. It makes telling the story of Boudicca much more difficult. The story as it is told has to be taken with the understanding that we only have these limited and biased texts. The main points and battles have been verified with archaeological evidence, but the personal details still remain an unproven mystery to us. Keep that in mind as we are going through Boudicca's campaign, as there are a lot of assumptions made based on the descriptions we have, the known fighting styles of the time period, and the evidence that has been unearthed since that time. Boudicca's very name was misspoken for years, and is now even spelled in different ways, including B-O-U-D-I-C-A and B-O-U-D-I-C-C-A, with the double C's there. The misspelled version from ancient times was printed B-O-A-D-I-C-E-A. To match the letters up evenly now, I kind of like the spelling with the double C's. Boudicca, spelled with only one C, seems to have originated in the 1970s, while the double C version was prevalent earlier in the 1800s. Persuticus decided that while he was still alive, he should take to a Roman tradition and create a will 
that would describe what would happen to his possessions and the Iceni kingdom in the event of his passing. The king wrote a clearly defined will that explained how half of his kingdom would be given to the emperor Nero and be put under Roman control, and the other half would be provided to his family, in particular to his two daughters. We don't know the exact reason why he had listed his daughters and not his wife as the heir of the kingdom. He could have been trying to ensure that his lineage would be the rightful heirs to the throne, as they were young and may have been under the care of their mother, or that in case something happened to his wife, Boudicca, who might naturally take over in his absence, the estate would then move on to their children. Or maybe he just didn't like his wife and left her out of the will. There is just no known source to verify why the decision was made. While the idea of the will, which was written in Latin, was distinctly Roman, the idea of having female family members as heirs to the kingdom was not. The Roman culture had a very distinctive separation from the Britons of this time period. No Roman emperor was ever female in the sense as the male emperors. No women fought as soldiers in the Roman military, and the Senate of Rome was only comprised of men. Power in Roman culture was greatly tilted toward men. In some of the other cultures of the time period, women had a much more equal standing as men taking political positions and fighting alongside the men in battle, which can be seen here with the Iceni in Britain. Persutagus had what was considered a prosperous reign from 48 to 59 AD, starting after a revolt of the Britons that was put down by the Romans. This also goes along with the narrative that he was in effect a puppet king, placed there by the Romans and allowed to maintain his culture and rule as long as he paid taxes to Rome and kept the local populace in check. The original revolt had started after the Roman general and governor of Britain, Austerius Scapula, declared that the local tribes be disarmed. We do not know the exact meaning of the phrase for this time period. Today, we could say maybe they would outlaw firearms and confiscate all weapons. But in the time period, the weapons consisting of swords and spears could easily be quickly forged by local blacksmiths and supplied to an army. Maybe they went and confiscated the weapons and also outlawed their manufacture. The end result was that this decree outraged the Iceni, who were already a client state of the Romans and felt that they had a privileged status, which was now being violated by the Romans. It makes me think of the American Revolution, where one of the grievances of the American colonists was that British troops would be quartered in their homes in a grave violation of their privacy and property. In the same way, this ruling to disarm the tribes enraged the Iceni enough to start a minor revolt. Tribes needed weapons to defend themselves against other tribes. Why should the Iceni, who were in an alliance with the Romans, also be disarmed? Shouldn't it only be the enemy tribes? This aggressive stance taken by the Roman governor was one of the many injustices that would fuel the Iceni's later revolt against Rome. Persutagus died in 60 AD after the relative calm for the 12 years after the first minor revolt. During this period, there was general economic growth and trading with Rome that occurred in his territories. Since he had the will that we had spoken about, 
Upon his death, everything should transition to the system he outlined, and everyone could live happily ever after. The end. Well, not exactly. Actually, with the death of Prasutagus in 60 AD, the Iceni and the Roman occupation of Britain would be thrown into turmoil. When the Romans learned of the king's death, they sent a contingent of troops to the Iceni capital. For the Romans, a treaty was agreed upon specifically with an individual and not a kingdom. The Romans felt that they had a specific contract with Prasutagus, and with his death, they could move into their client state and bring it back fully under Roman control. The Roman plan and the will that Prasutagus left behind were in direct conflict with one another. Thank you for listening. This is the end of part one of the Boudicca series. If you would like to find out additional information, check out our other episodes or help out the show, please head over to our website at sparkhistory.com. Stay tuned for part two of the Boudicca series, where we are going to get into what started the conflict between Boudicca and the Roman occupiers of Britain and go through the stage of events that turned Boudicca's determination for revenge into a full-scale rebellion. If you want to know right when that next part in the series will be released, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Spark History. Thank you and have a great day.